Let Me Ask You is a podcast for adults. We discuss explicit topics, sensitive topics such as death, suicide, drugs, etc. Content warnings can be found in the description. And we're not experts. Enjoy. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Let Me Ask You. As Clay would say, the podcast. The podcast. <laughs> As always, I'm joined by my <laughs> co-host and friend, Clay. In this episode, Hello. we're following up with part two with Samantha and her zany tale so without further ado samantha welcome back so good to see you you too good to be with you guys you guys always make me laugh <laughs> you bring it out of us we value <laughs> laughter it's good like a medicine i'm just saying the best author honestly in the world <laughs> it is contagious for our audience if you're looking for us anywhere you can find us on facebook and instagram and twitter just search for let me ask you l-e-m-m-e ask ya y-a we also have a link tree it's in all our bios stay tuned for the patreon coming up we do have a we're gonna start doing yeah we're gonna um... start doing video we work really hard on the podcast production and your support just means more content we have a lot planned and we're excited for more to come clay needs coffee to keep him up while editing i need coffee to continuously whip clay into doing the editing so it's just we're both we're struggling yeah, that's the relationship. I am artist. a prisoner over here, okay? It's it's borderline Stockholm Syndrome. Please help me. <laughs> okay, Samantha, let's jump right back into your story. Where we last left off, you were in Houston, relapsed, had to get your stomach pumped, and then went to California to live with Grandma and your son. Yeah. You know, in Houston, I don't know if I shared this with you, but I was in ICU for like three days. And they literally said if I would have come in an hour later, there would have been nothing I, they could have done for me. I would have died one of the most horrific deaths and painful deaths that I could have ever endured. And, uh, you know, you just so many things in life. You know, I was just doing my rehearsal for Detroit, Michigan, that I'm going to be speaking at in March. And we were just, you know, tweaking things. And um, the owner of the program said, like, I gave him just a glimpse of some of the things I've been through. And he said, you know. It reminded him of the movie Life with um, Bernie Mac and um, uh, Martin Lawrence. And he said, your life reminded me of that part in the movie where there was a, <clears throat> there was, they were all sitting in jail and they got a letter and he couldn't read it because he wasn't educated, I guess. And the other guy read it and he said, the letter went like this. Your mom just died. Your sister died. <laughs> oh, yeah. Your dad died. Your cousin died. Oh, and the dog died. <laughs> and he said, most people never go through the level of trauma that I have gone through. But it's all about learning how to use every ounce of everything you've gone through to get you where you want to go. And um, so all of those pieces, all of those parts, you know, trying to commit suicide at that point in my life and wanting to die, it became a place, a piece of my life where I could help others that are experiencing that. And I could relate to them. I could empathize with them. And so it's very, very important to me. So in Houston, I had my child, ended up relapsing, so mad at myself, couldn't believe I did it, and um, tried to commit suicide, tried to take my own life, took all of those Tylenol and half of a bottle from a Costco. So it was quite a bit. Um, and just side note, my liver is back to 110%. The doctors actually stood in amazement uh, probably oh, 15 awesome. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, God, is he's a miracle working God, you know, and I know not everybody believes the same and that's okay, you know, but 
we have to kind of finally admit somehow, some way there's, there's just something bigger than us working, you know, and teaching and, and providing lessons. So I end up moving back to Bakersfield, California, which is where I'm from with my grandmother. And, you know, geographical changes, we think that it will change where you're at in life, but it doesn't. Um, and I moved back home and was doing really good. And I went through that several times. I'd have 11 months sober. I'd have a year sober. I'd have nine months sober. And it's so funny. And I, when I'm speaking to people with addictions, when you get to that point, you think, oh, I'm strong. I can handle it a little bit. I, you know, I can do it once now. And, I, you know, I'm not addicted anymore. And that's just a lie that we tell ourselves. And so I love to teach um, in uh, places where um, addiction is prevalent. I've taught in the jails and, and the revolving door literally shut down. I would love to get back and do that um, because I have so much wisdom and experience from everything I've been through with that to help others. And seeing others come to life through your tragedy, through your trauma, will actually bring healing to you. So I get back to Bakersfield and I start using again. Uh, ended up getting kidnapped there, uh, was held against my will there and out on the streets and in a hotel room and finally escaped that place. <laughs> Who kidnapped you? And you're talking about a similar situation to what you went for prior. Yeah. Went through it again. Exactly. Um, that's what happens kind of in the drug world. You know what I mean? And uh, this one, he just wanted me for himself. He was a drug dealer. He was all of that and just didn't didn't want me to leave him. And I remember getting out of that hotel room. It was on Union Avenue in Bakersfield, California. And it's so crazy when I drive through, when I go home and I drive through those areas now, it's like looking into somebody else's life. I, I, I am such a changed person today that it's literally like it was a movie I watched or somebody else's life or somebody else's story, you know, because it's, I'm so far detached from everything I went through. I'm so healed from all of that. But I remember sneaking out, going to a payphone. Now, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember payphones. <laughs> I remember there being a payphone. I don't remember it working. <laughs> so I, I think I saw one in a movie one time. Watch it. Watch it. <laughs> <I'm showing my laughs> the movie was in black and white, too. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, watch it. You're, you're, you're stepping on toes now, man. <laughs> but... I uh, ended up getting to a payphone calling my grandma. Of course, that addiction just kept on. It was just, a, it felt like a never-ending cycle. And um, I remember I ended up with who would become my second child's father. And he was also a drug dealer. Um, and I thank God for him now. We're still friends to this day. But I thank God for him now because because of who he was in that city, in that community, um, he had such a level of respect, if you could call it that, in that world, that nothing ever happened to me. So I was protected no matter where I went. There were so many times I could have, could have, should have, and probably would have ended up dead if the hand of God hadn't been on my life. And I remember um, we ended up getting an apartment, and I came into my apartment, and some things happened. As a matter of fact, when I'd gone through a recovery home at one point, you guys, like, the pastors that were at that church of the recovery home ended up at my next door apartment. And I will never forget this as long as I live. I saw their car downstairs and I had all these people with me and we just went to go get some, some drugs. And I was like, get in the house, get in the house. Oh my God, the pastors are next door. Oh my God. And I'm freaking out and I'm already paranoid. And 
and I and I could hear them praying through the walls. But the crazy thing was, I talked to them years later, and they never, they never were praying. So I must have just heard it or something. But I made everybody leave, and I started flushing all the stuff down the toilet, and I I just wanting to die. And so here we go again, round two. And I remember praying and saying, God, if this is all you have for me, let me die now. I think right before that, I had taken a shower. Gosh, I'm giving you guys all of my nuggets. I was in the shower and I was just crying and crying because I was so mad at myself that I'd found myself in this place again. And I remember hearing the Holy Spirit. He said, get out and break your pipe and you'll never want this again. And I remember getting out of the shower and I remember looking at some dope that was on the counter. And I was like, just one more. And it sent me on that downward spiral. So I had started crying and crying and I was sitting in a chair. I can still see myself there. And I was like, God, like, if this is all you have for me, just let me die now. I just want to die. I don't want to be here. I'm a horrible mother. I'm a horrible daughter. My mother was paranoid, petrified all the time, worried about me. My grandmother all the time worried about me. And we're talking about a girl who weighed less than a hundred pounds, soaking wet probably. Um, I would stay up six days at a time. It was my escape. <clears throat> the drug would give me confidence. It would give me numbness. It would help me to deal with all of the things I didn't want to deal with in my life. And that was the only escape I knew. And I remember later on, God speaking to me and saying, there's a reason that he's called the most high God, because the enemy gives us the counterfeit to get us off track. And I remember going in at that time and I turned on all the gas, my stove, closed up all the windows, and I sat there and just wanted to die. And uh, my son's father came home unexpectedly. And I guess he said he smelled the gas from downstairs in the parking lot of the complex. And he ran upstairs and he turned off the stove and opened the windows and opened the doors. And my life was saved once again. And, you know, I was so mad. I was so mad because I just didn't want to live anymore. And I was so mad. But I can never forget that I told God. If this is all there is for me, let me die. And it was not a couple of days after that, I went to go stay with my mother. And I remember laying in the bed and I was so exhausted from being up for so long. And for those of anybody that's ever done drugs, I had a pipe full of drugs. And I knew what the Lord had told me. If you break this, you will never want for it again. And I couldn't do it myself, you guys. I remember laying in that bed exhausted and my mom and her boyfriend at the time were standing there. <clears throat> and I said, I need you to go destroy this pipe. And I am here to tell you, I have almost 28 years sober from that moment. I have never wanted it again. I was working in Los Angeles, dancing in Hollywood, dancing all over in Vegas. But I can remember a party in LA with a pile of Coke as big as the table. and I had no desire for it. He was faithful to that promise. Yeah. 28 years now. I think that also is a huge testament to your character as well. 
that you were able to break that cycle and then stay strong for the past 28 years. Thank you. It has been, it's been a journey, you know, and I think that the, if you want to call it maybe the second half of my life that we are going to get into, I think that that was even more difficult because in the first half, even though I was a victim as a child and I went through so much and it caused, the trauma caused so many responses in my life, you know, doing the drugs and doing this and doing that and running to escape and all of those things. Some of that, most of that was still self-inflicted. Even though it was response, it was trauma response, it was still self-inflicted. I still made the choices. I still went out there. I was, I was still using and I was still surrounding myself with those people and those things. And I think it was the second part of my life that hit me even harder because I worked so hard at that point, guys, to become the mother I wanted to be. I, you know, I, I began to be a dancer. I started working at a club as a, as an adult entertainer. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't think it was that bad because God, I'd been out on the streets and, you know, I had gone through so much that this was nothing. This was, this was nothing compared to where I had already been. And I'm providing, you know, this income and, and I'm becoming a, a mother and I, I have my own place. And I, I had already lost my oldest son. My grandma was raising him, but I had my second child. And, you know, it was him that helped me to stay sober because I found that I was pregnant and, and all of those things. And it's funny how everything works together, you know, for the good. And so here I'm doing great. I'm doing awesome. My grandmother will not let me see my oldest child. I um, end up going to court just to get visitation, but she just wanted him for herself. So I'm still going through rejection, abandonment. I'm still going through trauma and drama and all of these things, but I'm working. I'm working to better myself. I'm working to be financially capable of, of taking care of this, this other boy in my house and being this mother to him and, and all of those good things and have such great memories. I think it's important for our viewers to know, like, from my experience in the drug world, when, you, when, you're, when you're addicted to something, when you're addicted to a substance, you work for that substance. Yep. Any money you make, anything that you do is in an effort to get more of that. Yeah. So now you're working and you have your own money and you're making, paying your own bills and supporting your children. 24, 25 years old. And I'm learning how to cook. I'm learning how to clean. I'm learning how to do all these things that I never did because I was just an addict, you know? And so I'm learning how to be a person, a human, a woman, a mother. I, I'm, uh, uh, you know, how to get a child in bed at the right time, how to cook him a meal, you know, mac and cheese and tuna helper and hamburger helper were my best friends. And... <laughs> If it came in a box, I could make it. <laughs> you left grandma's in Bakersfield. You yeah. went to mom's where? Well, I still lived in Bakersfield, got my own apartment, lived in the complex with my mother. She got her own place. I had my own place. And, and I'm dancing. And then they, I guess I was so good. They sent me to Vegas to open up little darlings and all of these good things. And um, I became uh, pretty popular in that world. But I was so proud of myself. I, I wasn't using crack cocaine. I wasn't using methamphetamines. I was proud of myself. But there came a point when I realized I was still empty. I was still void. And I think that point happened when I wanted to be in love so bad. I just, from the time I can remember as a child, 
playing house was what I, I wanted to be the wife. I, I actually wanted to be the preacher, believe it or not. And I, I wanted all those things as a little girl when you dream and fantasize about your future. And here I was now, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm making money, I'm taking care of myself, I'm not a drug addict, I'm, I'm doing good. And I wanted that husband. And I met the man who was going to be my husband. And I, I, I remember the night we met, it was at a bar, I got there about midnight. And I was very cocky at that time. I was very cocky and confident. And what I've learned now, I was cocky and confident in the outside, but I still didn't know the inside of who Samantha really was. But I was successful and everybody wanted to be like me or be me. And and I remember asking him to dance and telling him he wasn't from Bakersfield so he could dance with me. And mind you, everyone wanted to hang out with me. I was hanging out with people like Jamie Foxx, the Wayans brothers in Los Angeles during that season, that time of being a an exotic dancer, an adult entertainer. Did you perform for them? Oh, yeah. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Carmen Electra would come in and watch. As a matter of fact, I just saw Sean Wayans not long ago, and re- I, he didn't recognize me. It's been 25 years, and... When I, he said, oh, it wasn't me. I said, oh, no, it was you. And I reminded him of some things. He goes, oh, my God, it's been forever. I said, yeah, it has. Wait, this is a little blunt, but did you, wait, did you give Jamie Foxx a lap dance? No. So Jamie and I were really good friends. Sean would come in. um, I dated Ice-T's DJ. We've actually been friends for 30 years now. Um, I was just submerged in that world. And, um, yeah, it, it, it was just a world. Um, LL Cool J hung out with them. And I can tell you stories of Hollywood that would probably blow your mind. But, <laughs> but Jamie and I were always friends. Let's do this. Top three celebrities you ever met and why? Mm. Top three celebrities I've ever met. Ooh, I would have to say Jamie. He was genuine. Shout out to Jamie Foxx. He was hilarious. Um, he played football with my son on Venice Beach. I hung out at his house. But one thing I had learned was to always be the one that they could never have, and you would always be the one that they desired. That is some top-tier manipulation tactics. Put that on t-shirt. Always be the one that they can't have, and you'll always be the one that they want, the one that they desire. And I had learned that tool in my trade. And because the greatest human nature is to want what we think we can't have. So Jamie and I never dated, nothing like that. We were just good friends. But we would show up at a club and he would see me and he'd say, her and all her girls, get them in and whatever they want to drink is theirs. Yeah, so he was a very genuine person. But I also saw so much in that world that so many young people think that they, they're they striving to see that, you know, because it's all media and, you know, all of this. But it's one of the loneliest places to be. Because you have all the fortune and the fame, but you're still empty and void on the inside. You don't know who your real friends are. You don't know who's going to turn on you at any given moment to make a dime, to make a dollar. You don't know if people love you really for who you are or if they only love you because of who you are. So it was it was very um, much life lessons that were very valuable and important to me. You know, my grand, my great, my grandfather, my great grandfather is General Robert E. Lee. My grandfather was a multimillionaire, and I watched him growing up. He got cancer, and he was such a stingy person, full of greed, and his money didn't save him, and it never made him happy. And I can say the same thing when I hung out in Hollywood. I saw the same thing. Jamie tried to put me in the studio to sing. He heard my voice, 
And that's probably one of my regrets because I said, oh, no, I promised my voice to the Lord when he delivered me from drugs. And so I never did it. And now I'm like, oh, I should have done it because there's no, who knows where I could have gone, you know, um, in Rather be on the Lord's record label. Yeah. And that was how I felt back then. But you know what? Now looking back, because hindsight's 2020, I'm like, I could have done that and still brought it to the Lord, you know, but the things we learn and the regrets we have, but. Two questions. Did you maintain Christian values through this Hollywood excursion? And did you say you related to Robert Lee? Like General, General Robert E. Lee, like six times removed. He's like five or six times removed my great-grandfather. Wow. And I was completely disowned from that side of the family. As a matter of fact, in my grandfather's will, it says my name and then it says disowned because I had you biracial know, children. I think that would be something to be proud of. I, you know, Maybe that's I just me. <laughs> I would do it again. <laughs> My daughter so, became 16 point guard. Not too upset that you got removed from Robert E. Lee's family. <laughs> yeah, not that upset about that. Yeah. <laughs> Count your blessings. So how right. did you manage how did you manage any any amount of Christian values that you took into this Hollywood dancing adventure? You know, as I look back on my life, I realized that the Christian values have always been there as far as internally. Now, of course, externally, the church would say, oh my God, you were in sin and you were going to hell. And, but even in the drug world, I never stole from people. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't mistreat people. I was always going above and beyond to be that kind person and to help others. And I mean, to the point of even stupidity, I can remember so, so many funny stories. Um, you know, like I would go to the hood where the blood and the crypts were and nobody else would go and they would give me twice as much for my money and instead of taking back what the person paid for I'd give them the whole amount you know so I look back and I see that like internally I've always been a do-gooder if you would and I, and I believe that that's the root of who Christ is and so they were always in me I always wanted to be an encourager um, even in the dance world it wasn't so much about mm, I don't know how to say it I guess it's you know, it wasn't about the sex. It was about making somebody laugh, about helping them to escape whatever they were dealing with and going through and and um, just empowering them to get through life. So I always had that in me. Um, so I would I would say that those were the internal things that, that were rooted in me from the time I was a child. Just always being a, a helper, always being a do-gooder. Yeah. I think there's I think there's something to say there because where I grew up, like, if you weren't Christian, you weren't good. If you if you weren't a Christian, you weren't a good person. And I think that too many people overlook that there are so many good people outside of religion. Most definitely. And I think I know that now more today than I've ever known that. And I think that I've come to a place where, you know, I laugh and my big joke is now, you know, I was a wild child when I was young, then I became a prude and now I'm balanced. <laughs> it took me 50 years to get here. But, you know, it's thinking outside of those boxes, thinking outside of those dimensions, releasing the spirit of control. So much of Christianity is based on control. It's controlling others and um, and the hoops you have to jump through and always feeling like you're never good enough. And that no matter what you've accomplished, you still have more, you know, to, to, to be a better person and to be closer to God. And and we never take the time to celebrate the the miracles and the small things and the the just who someone is and so that's kind of what i do now yeah 
So yeah, I I lived. I I lived. Absolutely, I lived. You did. I hung out in places with Shaquille O'Neal. I hung out in places with Prince. I thought he was a woman on crack cocaine because he was up in the VIP room and. It's like, how did she get up here? And it was Prince. <laughs> he went running out a back door and um, hung out with all those people, went into VIP places that nobody else could get in. And um, I loved it. I loved it. And then I meet who was, like I said, going to be my husband. And uh, I wanted to be the best wife. I'd learned how to be a mother to the best of my ability at that point. And I wanted to be a wife. I wanted to be loved. I just craved being loved. I just wanted the attention and the affection. I wanted to be valuable and important to just one person that saw the good in me. And we met and we moved in together the first day. <laughs> we met on a Saturday night. He moved in on Sunday and he never left. We got married within six months. And I knew at that point, I knew at that point, Jake, that there was no way I could continue in the the business I was in, there was no way I could continue in the lifestyle and be the wife I wanted to be. And I remember starting to cry out to God and, and just be like, God, you know, like, I want to be the wife that you desire me to be that, you know, I want to learn how to cook. I remember baking or making some chicken breasts and the dogs would eat it because it was so hard. And I was like, I want to learn how to cook. <laughs> I wanted to just better. I wanted to better myself. Now I can make the best greens you've ever eaten. <laughs> But, um, and I remember crying out and I got on the, uh, I was working in Bakersfield at the club, got into an argument with the management, which I ran the club. I had dated the owner. I pretty much did what I wanted, got in an argument with the manager and quit. And so the only other place was like two hours away. So I started driving two hours to work and it was, uh, outside of Fresno. And then somebody broke in my car and stole my stereo and I made enough money to go replace it, but I didn't. I just put, you remember those boom boxes? I put a boom box in my car. And I, before I did that, I, I can remember driving in the quiet. And the only songs that I started to hear were hymnals and stuff I grew up on as a kid. And I just started singing songs as I drove that two hours to work. And I remember pulling in the parking lot with just tears streaming down my face. And going in, and you're you're gonna laugh, but I started to pray for the women in there, and um, one of them was a pastor's daughter who contacted me, you know, a year or so later, and had gotten back into her, into her calling and into her life, and you know, I I would drive home and I would be up till four o'clock in the morning. My son had asthma attacks, and I I can remember praying for him because we'd have him in the hospital about at least once a month because his nebulizer wasn't strong enough and we'd have to get him to the hospital. And I came home and he had had an asthma attack that night. And so I got home from work and I had, I think it was Joyce Myers on TV. And I was just trying to find myself through the Lord at that point. Cause I knew he was my lifeline. Somehow I knew I, I needed him in order to achieve everything that was in me to do, to be that mother, to be that wife. I needed him. And I remember my, my husband at the time like rolled over and he said, turn off Joyce Myers. And I was like, how did you even know it was Joyce Myers? He's like, I know her voice, you know, and I'm up praying and I'm like, God, heal my son and I'll quit smoking and I'll do whatever it takes. And I literally saw an angel walk through my apartment that night. And uh, I, I can't even explain it, but I watched this angel walk through my apartment and 
and and in less than six months, my son never had asthma again. I don't know at what point it stopped. It just stopped. It might have been a month. It might have been two months. But you just realize one day, oh my gosh, she's not had an attack. You know, and I remember crying out to God and and just singing these hymns on the way to work. And I remember um, going to the Christian bookstore in this little skimpy, skimpy dress. <laughs> and everybody's staring at me like I was like, a hooker and a prostitute and I just didn't care because I wanted to go get this one CD and that was the only place that I knew where to go get it and and I would play that CD and it was a it was an artist that helped me to get through addiction and I and I was just trying to find the Lord and I I remember just crying out to him and um and then I remember finding out I was pregnant and this would be with my third child and I only had one fallopian tube at this point. Mind you, I've had three kids since I had a tubal pregnancy and my tube exploded after my oldest son. And I lost that child and pretty much died and came back and it was crazy. But my, uh, I find out I'm pregnant with uh, my third child and I get so big, you guys, that they end up firing me from my job. They're like, you can't work here. Wow. Like <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to do. But I remember looking back, I had cried out and I remember telling God, if you want me to serve you, you've got to do something because I like my job and I make good money. <laughs> Ask God to let you keep stripping. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I like my job and I make good money and I don't have anything else in life to do. So if you really want me to serve you completely, you better figure it out. And I end up pregnant and so big that they fire me. And about that time, my ex-husband was, uh, driving for trucks and he had gotten his truck driver license and they put him in a, in a, um, in a truck driving cross country with a pastor. So he's gone for three days at a time with a pastor. And so long story short, we start going to church. We start completely serving the Lord. It was a 180 degree turn. And, uh, we became pastors after that. And I just wanted to love people. I wanted to love God. I wanted people to know how powerful God was. I wanted people to know his love, his unconditional love. And we just began to, host citywide meetings. I put on the first Christian parade in California. We had like 33 different churches involved. We had a citywide event that was phenomenal. I worked with the Dobsons and God gave me a vision for a human cross on the National Day of Prayer that thousands showed up. Um, and he just blessed me. He just, and I had my third child, then I had my fourth daughter. Um, I wasn't even supposed to get pregnant. I had one fallopian tube and I was on the pill and here comes my fourth child. <laughs> I call her my little miracle baby. During this slow fade transition into living inside of the church, the people that would have known about your past, did you receive any difficulty with them accepting you into the church or you did know, they just not know? That, that's kind of twofold. I can remember one of my drug dealers one night when I was out in the middle of the night and I went to his window and I'll never forget what I said to him. I said, you know, I woke him up and trying to buy something. And, and I said, this isn't who I am. You see me for who I am right now, but one day you're going to see me for what I really am supposed to be. And I remember preaching at an outside evangelistic event and guess who was there? That drug dealer. That drug dealer. Did he respect yeah. that? Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, but when I came into the church, and I don't know if I've shared this with you guys, but 
I started to share my testimony because I was just elated. I was so excited about everything God had delivered me from and healed me from. And, you know, like I'm so in love with him. I'm on fire. I'm, I'm passionate. And, you know, I'm just, he's like all in all, he's like everything. And I'm telling people about who I used to be. And the gossip started. And that's why in my book that I'm finishing up now, it says, I feel like I'm standing in a room full of people and I'm the only one standing here naked. Because it's not the people in the world that will judge me, but it will actually be the people in the church. And yet you prayed for us to be healed. You prayed for us to be delivered. But when we are, (laughs) you never let us forget who we used to be. And I remember the gossip started and nobody ever shares your story the way you do. And I remember the Holy Spirit said, Samantha, quit telling your testimony until I tell you to. Because I have a lot for you to do, and I need people to receive who I am through you more than I need them to know where you came from. And if they know where you came from, they won't listen to what I need you to do. And he said, but there's coming a point in time when I'm going to get you to a place in life. And when I get you there and you share your story, they will know then that it was nobody but God, and I'll be the only one that receives glory from your life. So I quit telling my testimony. That's exactly the point that I wanted to get to is, you know, in the Bible, Jesus goes out and he reaches people that no one else wants to reach. And once he reaches them, he doesn't treat them differently, right? He treats them the same from the time he meets them to the time that they are walking with him to the time that they're listening to him. And I feel like we've, the church has gotten so far away from that, that they, they go out and they, they witness or you know, talk to these people that are in addiction and all these other bad parts of life. And then once they receive them into the church, they don't get the same treatment as people who have been with the church forever. Correct. And if you're looking at it from a biblical standpoint, I always go back to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute who was full of seven demons, but she was the first one to see the risen Lord. Before the men, he revealed himself to her. And the message that God had given me about that moment, she was weeping. She was crying because the body was gone. The stone had been rolled away, but the body was missing and she was crying. And the revelation that the Lord gave me was, this is the only time that I have found yet in scripture where Yeshua, the son of God, Jesus was on his way to do what God, the father told him to do. And he took a detour. He heard Mary crying, and the, way, the reason I can tell you that is he heard her crying, and he went to her, and she didn't even recognize him. She didn't recognize him in his glorified state. She thought he was the gardener, and it wasn't until he called her by name. When he spoke her name, she turned around and recognized him and called him Rabbanai. But in the scriptures, he says to her, don't touch me for I have not yet ascended. He was on his way to finish the course, but he detoured to let a prostitute full of seven demons and delivered to let her know that he was okay. That's how much love, that's how much love the master has. It is the woman who was caught in adultery and that word caught means somebody else was there, but yet she was the only one being stoned. It was him who delivered her. And it's so funny or sad because so often the church is like, yes, and he told her, go and sin no more. 
But we forget the very simple fact that everybody was ready to stone her and he stepped in. And we don't know what he wrote in the sand. It might have been the name of the man she was with. It might have been the law that both of them were supposed to be stoned. We don't know what he wrote in the sand. And it could go in so many different directions. But the valuable part of the story is he stepped in. He interfered. And now I see it. Maybe he was saying, go and sin no more because we want to focus on that we have the ability to never sin again. Or maybe he was saying, don't get caught in this again because I might not be there to protect you. We don't know the death. That's why I love the Bible so much because it's alive. You can read Moby Dick only so many times. You can read Gone with the Wind only so many times. But the Bible is something that people can read 30, 50, 60, 70 years and still get something new out of it every season of your life. I think that's a healthy way to look at it. So you joined into the church. Yeah. You started organizing. You started becoming an active community member. And where did your life take you after that? It was amazing. Like, um, I loved it. Everything was going amazing and awesome. I felt like I had this powerhouse couple. My ex-husband and I, we tag teamed. We preached together. We were both beautiful people on the outside, and I thought beautiful people on the inside. Um, I was so in love with him. So in love with him. I would have stepped in front of a bus for that man. I was smitten by this man. And then one day he puts me in the car. And tears start streaming down his face. And he said, I have to tell you something. And he had ended up having an affair with the one woman I warned him about in our congregation. I remember pulling up. He got out of the car and started walking because he was driving. And I got in the car and I went to my mother's house. And she said, when I pulled in the driveway, she was watering her lawn. She said, I thought one of the kids had died because I was so, so distraught. Here is this woman who has worked so hard to overcome so much. And I'm finally in a place in life where I feel like I'm powerful and I have authority and I'm beautiful and I have a great marriage and I'm raising these wonderful children and I'm doing everything that society said I shouldn't have been able to do, that I was, should have never been able to accomplish. And I'm doing it. And yet my husband that I am in love with leaves and goes out on me and destroys the church name. And I remember, I remember him having to sit down for a year and then making the decision we were going to move to Tennessee. And we did that because there was no way he was going to live his reputation down where we were at. So I gave up ministry on TV out of LA. I gave up our church. I gave up the citywide events and working with the Dobsons and everything I had accomplished in my life to cover this man. And a woman in our church, in our congregation, now everybody had to know that he had had an affair with this one young woman. And I remember the day I was trying to call him after he told me. I was remembering this the other day. And I couldn't get a hold of him. And this fear that he was going to commit suicide came all over me. And that was the moment that I realized I can forgive him for what he's done, but I don't want to live without him. So we moved to Tennessee and one of the other young women in the church said, I feel like I'm supposed to go with you. Unbeknownst to me, she was also having an affair with my husband. That yeah. is dirty. I get where you're coming from, though, when you have someone in your life that means so much to you that 
even though like they betray you and it hurts so bad like saying goodbye to them would hurt even worse and then it's like like it and like i don't know like there's been so many instances where i've had friends or loved ones and they become strangers with memories and it hurts so bad to think about but i guess it maybe like softens the blow a little bit if you stay connected but now your relationship is just taking a different path so maybe it wasn't like for the worst i mean how how's the relationship with him these days well so he ends up having an affair with that woman for probably about two years we moved to tennessee i've given up everything i'm still traveling to keep my ministry alive and you know and i'm talking through things and sharing with women and I'm a firm believer that everything that you go through in life has a purpose for you to help others to get through. And when you realize that, that all of your trauma, all of your tragedy actually has a purpose, you start to see it from new perspectives instead of it being like the woe is me and oh, you don't know what happened to me because we could all live in a pity party for the rest of our lives. And we all have a story and we all have trauma and we all have tragedies. But when you choose to retrain your brain and turn it around, and see it as the opportunity. And one of the things that I speak all the time now is the greatest gift you will ever give yourself is to be a gift for someone else. And I'm so grateful for my story because it has opened me up and made me able to reach so many different people from so many different walks of life because I can empathize with them. I understand them. I know where they're at. I can speak their language. I, I know what it feels like to need that drug more than raise your child. I, I, I understand all those things and I can reach people at that level and also give them hope for a future. So I'm so grateful for my story. But we moved to Tennessee. I don't know they're having. Now this is funny. The day before we left, I heard she's after your husband and I thought it was the devil. And I remember from my church going friends, I was like, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and it was the Lord. <laughs> so we get there and I start to see all these things and I can remember living. I, I was just devastated. Here I am getting over the one affair and I'm sensing this other one in my house. And I'm still trying to get through the first affair and feeling like you're crazy. And I remember saying to him, like, is something going on? I remember saying to her, confronting them, is something going on? No, you just haven't forgiven me. So it was like a knife to the heart because forgiveness was my thing. That's what I taught. That's who I was. You've got to forgive or you won't be forgiven. And so here I'm thinking I've not, I've not forgiven him and shame on Samantha. And, you know, and, and I felt in that season, I was losing my mind. I felt like I was going crazy. And yet I'm still trying to press in to the Lord. And I'm trying to be everything that God needs me to be for him. I'm trying to be the wife that he needs me to be. I've, I never withheld myself from him, uh, which a lot of women do. I didn't do that. I, I tried to be everything that he needed me to be, and it still wasn't good enough. I remember sitting in church services that we were hosting, and people would come to talk to me, and I couldn't even say hello because if I would have opened my mouth, the tears would not have stopped because of the mental and emotional abuse that I was suffering. And it was then that I wrote my first book because that was all I could do. I would get in the presence of the Lord and just write and, and in my journal. And I didn't know it was going to even be a book. And two journals full later, God said, go get that. It's a devotional. And uh, it's been a very powerful, powerful book. And it's just downloads from heaven. And, and that's why I like to share with people so often the things that you have gone through 
is for a purpose. And it's sometimes that it's the hardest times of your life that will become the greatest rewards. I was just going to say, so outside of your religious battles, um, can you talk to us a little bit more about how it was back home, like going through like the divorce proceedings and the legal battle that you had with your husband, like that kind of thing? Yeah. So he became a cop when we moved to Tennessee. He became a cop, gave up our business, and started making $12 an hour. I tried to move the woman out of our house, and he said she was not leaving. Um, I tried to downsize our house and live in a place that we could afford, but we he wouldn't move. So I remember doing everything in my power to save my marriage. Um, he's now an officer at this point, and I'm still trying to do ministry because that was my only safe place. And then I remember um, he was going to do a motorcycle cop training with a banquet in Nashville. And it was May of 2015. And I said, I'm going with you. I'm your wife. I'm coming to support you. I'm coming. And at that point, you know, I didn't, we didn't drink throughout our, our marriage. We would take a cruise and I might have a, a, a glass of wine on my cruise. But I remember at that point, I was like, well, maybe if I have a couple drinks with him, I can save my marriage. If I just get out of this religiosity, maybe I can save our marriage and rekindle those flames. And so I remember going with him to the banquet and he ignored me the whole time. And everybody there, all of his coworkers that he wouldn't let me meet, were looking at me with these strange looks, like she's beautiful, she doesn't look crazy. <laughs> and I could like feel it. And I remember, and this was so devastating, they started to do an auction that night. And in the auction, they had a ring that they were going to auction off. And all of the other cops started laughing and they said, oh, Mr. Levy should get this for his wife. And everybody started laughing. And I felt like I was so tiny. I, I was embarrassed. I was, I was, I, I was, yeah. And I remember trying to save face and say, oh, I don't even like it. It doesn't fit. And I justified it as most women do. I justify, well, we just didn't have the money. And that was why he wasn't doing it for me. And, and I'll never forget that moment. And then we went to go dancing afterwards. And we went to a blues club. And there were three other couples from the banquet there, officers. But he didn't want to hang out with them. He still kept ignoring me, but he was off by, he had us off by ourselves. And we ended up having a couple of drinks. And I remember the other three couples got ready to leave. And I said, let's go with them. I want, you know, let's, let's make new friends. Let's, let's, he goes, no, I just want to be with you. And I lit up. And after they left, he started dancing with me on the dance floor. And we had a couple drinks and everybody was watching us because when we danced together, it was phenomenal. And I, I was like, we're going to make it. We're going to survive this. And the next thing I remembered, I don't remember leaving the dance floor. The next memory I had was in the parking garage where our car was across the way and him holding my hair as I threw up. The next memory I had was being in the back seat of my own car. I don't know why I wasn't in the front. And that was all I remembered until the next day. And I woke up the next day and I had a hangover so bad. I want to say like 110 times worse than anything I'd ever felt. And he had already left me there. He left earlier that morning. And uh, this will get kind of detailed, but I had stuff all over my face. And I remember waking up and wondering what had happened. And I was so sick that I couldn't even, felt like I couldn't drive my car at about one o'clock in the afternoon. And I started to Google, why would your husband do this to you? And they, you know, it was control issues and pornography and all of these things. And I remember calling him and saying, you know, why did you do this to me? He said, I'm your husband. Why would you even question that? 
And I said, I'm so sick. He said, you'll be fine. I'll get you a late checkout. You can drive home. So I remember at one o'clock feeling still sicker than a dog. And I knew something was wrong. I felt like I had been drugged, but you go through what's called cognitive dissonance. And it's when you believe something so much about a person, but then they start showing you that they're the exact opposite. It can actually drive a, a person crazy. And I would just justify. And even though in the core of my being, I knew that I had been drugged, I just justified it. And I said, well, I just drank too much. And he took advantage of the situation. That was May of 2015. Um, in September was my birthday. And I said, you're taking me out for my birthday. We're going out for my birthday. I don't care. I don't care. We're going for my birthday. And I don't want to go back to Nashville. We'll go to Knoxville. And he ignored me the whole trip. And then we went to a bar to go dancing. And he's like, you got to have a drink. And I said, I don't want to drink. He's like, you got to have a shot. It's your birthday. I said, I don't want a shot. I said, I don't want to drink. I don't ever want to feel like that again. Oh, you're ridiculous. You have to have a drink. Like, let's just order a shot. But I have to tell you that in the core of my being, in my gut, like I knew, and it was just solidifying what I knew had happened. And I said, fine, I'll have a sangria. So we order a sangria. I drank about three-fourths of a tall, of a tall glass. And I said, I'm done. I don't want any more. Oh, you got to have another one. You got to have a shot. I said, I don't want a shot. And he said, it's your birthday. I said, I'm going to the bathroom. I'll be right back. When I came back, there was another drink on the bar. And he said, I bought you another one. You have to drink it. And I said, I don't want it. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. I went to sip that drink because he was like, just drink it. You can't let it go to waste. And when I went to sip it, it tasted absolutely horrid. And I spit it back through the straw. And I said, I don't want it. I said, it doesn't even taste right. And he said, oh, he must not have mixed it well and poured it into my first one and started stirring it up and said, drink it. And I'll never forget this. I looked him dead in his face and I said, I'm ready to go. I think he was trying to roofie me again. And um, nothing happened that night. And we came back. That was the beginning of September. And I ended up getting us a, a duplex uh, because we had been fighting so much. And I thought if we moved out of his mother's house that we would do better. And I thought if I could just prove to him that I could be the wife that he needed me to be, <laughs> if I could just help financially, if I could prove to him and show him that I could do whatever it was that he needed of me, like that the marriage would be healed and we would be okay. And I got this duplex and then he served me on my anniversary with divorce papers. And I was devastated. And I was still begging. I remember taking his police uniforms and bringing them to my to the new house just so he would have to face me. I just wanted my marriage. I had conquered so much in my life. I had overcame so much. I had become a value to society and to my children. And I wanted my marriage. And I was willing to forgive him, even though I found out he was having this affair in my house with my friend. And I caught it. And, 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 and he lied his way out. He, he actually got caught by his own daughter and lied his way out to her. And... But I thought I can get past this. If we can just get past this, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. It's going to be all right. And the divorce hit. So now I was stuck in Podunk, Tennessee. I couldn't travel because I had the girls with me and I couldn't travel. And that was the only money I had that would come in. He didn't pay child support. If it wasn't for people in the church providing for us, we would have been homeless. At some point after going through all of this, I'm sure you still had your friends 
You still had people that were looking out for you. Yeah. At some point, did your demeanor change from, I just want this to work to, okay, that's enough? I don't think so. I think that I went through a season of begging him, of trying to figure out what I had done wrong, begging God to teach me, show me what I've done wrong. Why, why can't you fix this? Why can't you? And if I could just hold on long enough, he was going to come around. And I went through all of that and trying to get through the divorce, but I wasn't allowed to have a meltdown or breakdown because I got the girls and he's off doing whatever he wants to do. And he's got a career and a job and I have no money coming in. And like, it was so devastating. Like I shared this morning with my speech that I'm preparing for in Detroit, it was literally an identity crisis because it was during that season. I started getting mad at God. How could you do this to me? How could you have me go all over the world and pray for people and see blind eyes open and deaf ears healed on the spot? How could you not just heal this marriage? How could you not teach me to be the woman that I'm supposed to be so that he will fall in love with me again? I, I, I was so distraught. That I remember one day, and I think that's when the revelation hit, I was driving on a two-lane highway and a diesel truck was coming in the opposite direction. And I remember thinking, if I just turn the wheel, I can hit that baby dead on and the pain will be over. And the only thought that saved me was, I don't want my children to tell that story. So I was holding on to God with everything, but yet I'm angry at God and I'm confused. And all of these things, we start going to court. And of course, he's a cop in a small town in Tennessee. And that's what started this next chapter of my life. Because like I said, when I was younger, the trauma caused a response, but a lot of it was self-inflicted. At this point in my life, I've become the best version of myself that I could be. Was I perfect? By no means. But here I am, finally successful. I'm finally, you know, a, 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 a citizen in society that is making a difference and bringing a change. And I'm proud of myself and it still wasn't good enough. And I think, I think it's an important distinction to make. And I, I, I want to believe from how much I know about you that you know this now. Yes. God did not break that marriage and you did not do anything wrong. Yes, most definitely. And if we get back to that, it started a seven-year journey with the court system. I was in court for seven years. Seven years. I was put in jail for 10 days <laughs> for my first offense of, um, um, what was it? What, what did I go to jail for? It was 10 days for, um, uh, I, I can't think of the word right now, but I did 10 days in jail. Um, they said that I had broken an order that was not written in the order. Um, they had me for, they were trying to get me for five different counts. Now, mind you, it wasn't the judge. They held you in contempt. Held in contempt. That was the word I was looking for. Thank you. Contempt yeah. of court. They were trying to get me for five different counts, 10 days each. My attorney at the time, because I got through the divorce in about a year to a year and a half, um, he paid six months of alimony after 16 years of marriage. <laughs> he had $500 a month that he was ordered to pay for six months. I released him from all back child support because I just wanted him to leave me alone because at that point I did learn this is, this is not okay. And I remember seeing him out one night and I remember, I remember him calling me one night and he was like, you're still the best. And I said, and you'll never touch it again. How's that feel for you? 
And I started Hell yeah. getting my confidence. Yes. I was like, no. <laughs> no, we're and, done with that. Yes, I was done. And he saw me out and tried to get me to come home with him. And I was like, no, you'll never touch this again, like ever. And I'm good with that. And so my confidence started coming back. Now I was still confused with God. I was still even a little angry at God. And God walked me through that process. And that's a whole nother message. But he walked me through all of it. And I would go to court and and we went through all of these things. And then my daughter comes out as gay and I'm having to deal with that. And I hear I've got all of this on my plate. And yet I'm not even allowed to process it myself because I'm having to be a mother. And my children didn't want to go over there. And it was just rough. And um, so... A lot of my listeners are not going to let me breeze over this one either. Okay. Your daughter came out as gay. You are a prominent figure in the church. Yeah. What kind of backlash or exilism did you or your daughter experience because of it? I disciplined her. I corrected her. (laughs) And, and let me, let me preference. It's okay to say that we were wrong. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was wrong. And I have no problem saying that now. I remember saying to her she was going to go to hell. I remember her bringing a friend to church and me preaching against homosexuality while she was there. Um, Yeah, I devastated her. I destroyed her. So here she is dealing with this, as she put it later on in life, because she's my best friend now. She said, I would cry myself to sleep. How can I see miracles every time you went to church, but you prayed for me and the desire never changed? I still wanted to be with a girl. He said, I can remember crying to God, why did you make me this way? My mother's going to hate me. Said she cried herself to sleep for years. And uh, I didn't realize the damage I was doing. And I remember one time she, she just wouldn't obey me and she wouldn't leave this girl alone. And I even went off on the girl's mother <laughs> at a basketball game. Like, it was horrible. How dare your daughter come after my child? You know, like, you know, and um, I remember I told her dad to come get her and I put her out of my car and made her walk across the street to the gym where we were headed because I was about ready to murder her. (laughs) And I said, you better come get her. He had to drive an hour to come get her. And I put her out of my house. And that was what religion taught me. Put her out of your house. Give her over to Satan so that on the day of the Lord, her soul can be saved. And I had the scripture backing for it. And then I remember God getting on me. And he said this very specifically, when did I ever treat you that way? When did I ever tell you you weren't allowed in my presence? When did I ever tell you you weren't allowed in my fellowship, in my house? When did I ever, I don't know where you got that from, but that's not the Lord. And it broke me. And I cried and I cried. And he took me back to when I was 15 and wanted to date black men. (laughs) And my family said I was going to hell over it. And that's what they believed. And I realized I was repeating a pattern. I was doing the same thing that had been done to me. And it didn't stop my desires. It didn't change what I wanted. It didn't change what I was attracted to. It just devastated me to make me feel like I was never good enough. I think it's really important that you recognized a pattern and corrected your course. Oh, yeah. I, th- I think it's very noble of you, and I, I commend you on it. Thank you. Church people didn't want to hear me. I've had people call me this and say that about me. But I was like, man, when I was perfect, you were talking about me. 
now that I'm not perfect in your eyes, you still talk about me. So I'm darned if I do and darned if I don't. So I'm going to learn how to be me. And God's never, ever abandoned me. He's never stopped loving me. Even in my imperfections, in the season of my life where I was so perfect, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't listen to rated R movies, I didn't listen to anything but Christian music, I didn't do anything wrong. I was completely loyal to my husband. I didn't even look at a man on TV and say he was good looking. I didn't do anything. And church people still had something to say. Now I'm in a place where I was like, oh my God, I'm devastated. I'm trying to find me. I, you know, I, I, I'm doing everything wrong. And God loved me still. And he never left me. And he was right there and he was walking me through and he, he said, I'm going to break you to make you. I was like, break me. You need to break my daughter. She's the one that's saying she's gay. And you need to break my ex-husband. He's the one that left. And he was like, no, it's you. I'm going to change you in such a way that you're going to be so valuable to build my kingdom. I got through it. And I was willing to lose my career in order to love my child. I was willing to give up everything because I knew I wasn't going to lose the Lord over loving my child. And her and I have become the best of friends, the best of friends. She's 22 and she's amazing. And I told her recently, I said, you know, I chose to apologize to you, but I chose to show that my actions speak louder than my words. And now I have a heart for her and for those people. And I don't care what church people think anymore. Court system. So we're in court. We get through divorce. I get $500 a month in alimony. I think I got $200 a month in child support. I had nobody to watch my kids so that I could travel and do the ministry that I had done. People had to rise up and help take care of me. And I'm so grateful. And um, so I'm getting my kids through basketball. I'm getting them through everything. And my oldest, I get her off to college. And, oh, she went to live with her dad. She was there probably less than a year. Within four months, she was ready to come home. I began to learn of all of the things he had done to my children. He had thrown her up against a wall and was punching the wall by her face when she went to live with him. She had wrecked her car, at, a car her friend's car at 16, living with him. And she hit a tree and flipped it, and he never even went to go get her. I was in California speaking. He never even went to go get her. He told her to find a ride home the next day. He ignored her for over two months until she finally just ran away from his house to come back because he kept telling her, I will never let you go back with your mother. I found out at this point during this season time of life that my son that he had raised from the time he was three, that when he was 13 years old, he was punching my son in the rib cage as a pastor. And I didn't know about any of these things. It has been devastating, devastating because as a mother, you felt like you should have protected them. I wanted to be the best mother. I wanted to be all these things. And I realized that I was so caught up in this man that I not only lost me, I lost the very thing that was valuable to me, which was being the mother I always wanted to be. So my daughter and I, we end up back together and she turns 18. And he keeps me in court throughout this time, back and forth. And he manipulates. I'll never forget. We left. And the one DA said that I was actually correct in something I had said. I thought that my ex-husband was going to stab me with the pin that was sitting there. He was so angry. And it was the first day, Clay, that I had the strength. I was so 
full of PTSD and anxiety and all of these things that I had dealt with from the from the rape and the the traumas. And I remember he would go get on the elevator just as cocky as I'll get out. And I would just stay back, just intimidated and afraid. And I would wait for him to leave before I'd ever walk to the elevator and into my car. That was the first day that I had the strength back in myself to be that beautiful, vivacious woman that is bold and joyful. And I was laughing and I was giggling. And when he went to get on the elevator that day, I did something different. I walked right past him as the door opened. I got on the elevator and of the courthouse and I pushed the button and he got on and he was so irate and he was pushing buttons until the alarm went off. And he was like, you're laughing now. You're going to be crying. You hear me? You're going to be crying. I said, I've already cried my tears. They're over. That I'm grateful for the times that we had together that were good. And I'm praying for you. And he walked out of that courtroom. He's like, I hate that I ever married you. And he was screaming at the top of his lungs. And he was like, you're fake, 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 fake. Because the narcissist will always put on you what they are. And I remember walking up to the car and I was like, it's okay. I'm like, I know who you are now. You're the greatest narcissist I've ever met. I was like, you're good at it. And I was just so full of joy and confidence. And a woman was walking in the courthouse and she had parked where she, somebody that worked there. She said, that's the greatest thing I've heard anybody tell him all week. And I said, what? She said, that's the greatest thing I've heard anybody tell him all week, that he was the greatest narcissist. And I said, oh girl, I was married to him 16 years. And she said, I'm sorry. And I said, for what? She said that you had to be married to him that long. And I'll never forget her. I don't know who that woman was. I don't know if it was an angel, if it was a person. I, I don't know. But I knew that it was somebody that knew him. And I knew it was somebody that didn't really like him because they would have joked about it if it was funny. And that continued to give me the confidence to find me and to be me and to let me just shine. And little by little, I started gaining strength and I started feeling beautiful again and being able to look in the mirror. And I look at pictures from when I was in the end of the marriage to now. I look younger now. I look more beautiful now. I'm more full of life now. And, you know, you don't realize that you're so beat down. And so right after he said, you're going to be crying, he started to manipulate my youngest. He promised her everything, got her to move in with him, let her drink with 21-year-olds at 15. He let her do whatever she wanted. And I had no clue that he was setting me up for another disaster. So he ends up taking me to court. The judge ends up maxing me out, uh, maxing me out in the state of Tennessee for a woman in how much she can pay in child support. And they put a demand on me to start paying $500 a month in the middle of COVID when I can't even work. (laughs) It was crazy. They put me in jail on contempt of court. They were trying to get me for five counts. My attorney turned in a paper to show that I was talking to my daughter because that was one of the counts they were trying to charge me with, but she was Snapchatting me. And because I found out later that Snapchat could be erased. And she finally admitted to me that every time that she, that he saw that she was talking to me when she lived there, that she would get, you know, backlash. She would be ignored. She would go through these different things. So she was talking to me through Snapchat and she said, mom, why didn't Mimi hug me? Which was my mom. And I said, honey, they're threatening to put me in jail. This is not a joke. I am her child. I'm her baby. This is serious. It's not a joke. They put me in jail for 10 days for that. They put a gag order on me and said that I was not allowed to speak about this court case 
on social media of any sort that they would put me back in jail for 10 days. I went to them, told them about the rape. They said everything was unfounded. After the that happened and they found it unfounded, the very lounge, hookah lounge that he was hanging out in town that was 18 and up where he was hitting on his own daughter's friends and they were coming and telling her there was a rash of girls being roofied and raped. And that was where he hung out. And I kept trying to tell somebody that would listen and nobody was listening. Nobody was listening. So here I, I, God blesses me with a job. The supervisor of domestic violence tells me to leave the town where I'm at because she's in fear for my life. So I moved two hours away. He puts me in jail for 10 days, not two days, first offense. No. And uh, mind you, my attorney said, there's no way that they can get you on this because it's not in the order what they're charging you with. She said it was never there that you were not allowed to talk about the court case. So we go back in and he says, she says to the judge, there's no way that you can charge her with this. It's not in the order. And the judge literally said, she should have known better. It's in there now and wrote it in and gave me the date that I had to go to jail. Mind you, he was following me on social media. I had a major conference in Texas and they put me in jail for the dates that I was supposed to be in Texas. When I brought my records, my IRS records, my, my, um, because they said I, there was no way I could drive a Lexus making the amount of money that I was making. So I would freak out. PTSD would come in. I went to the bank and I was like, did I give you guys different numbers? Like, and they printed it all out for me when he said I was, I was, um, in trouble with the IRS and that's why I couldn't get my, but the IRS tax returns came right after that. And they called me back in and, uh, because when they gave the order that I was going to pay him, they actually miswrote it and said that he owed me. Well, I went ahead and made the, the, the payment. I knew it was a it was just a miss, you know, statement. But they called me back in and I looked at the judge and I said, Your Honor, if I was as vindictive and vengeful as you think I am, I would have never made that payment. I said, but I made the payment. I knew it was a mistake on your end. And I said, and this was my favorite day, Clay, Jake, this was my favorite day because I'm standing in court and I said, your honor, I just want to say thank you right now to you and to my ex-husband and to the attorney. I said, because when you put $500 a month on me, I didn't know how I was going to make that money. I was so scared I was going to go back to jail because I had no way of even thinking I could make that kind of money to make that kind of payment. And I said, but I just want to say thank you because you guys saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And you literally pushed me into levels that I didn't think I could accomplish. So I just wanted to tell you thank you. And I just sat and looked at him. <laughs> that was like my day of victory. So I did my 10 days. And then I was trying to see my daughter. She was 15 at that time and she was just mad at me. And, and I went to pick her up and we drove to Nashville and she wanted to go be with her friends and I wouldn't let her. So she was angry and she told me I want to leave. And dad said I could leave. And I said, she can't leave until I hear from you. And he said, she can go pretty much in a nutshell. And I told him the car she was leaving in. I told him everything. Two days later, my attorney calls and says, they're saying that you abandoned her and locked her out of the apartment and they want a restraining order against you. 
So I lost my child for three years from the age of 15 to 18 for doing nothing wrong, no drugs, no abuse, nothing. And the court system was able to do these things to me. And I, I love Black Lives Matter. And I tell people all the time, like they, that, especially the ones that don't agree with what they did. I said, you don't understand unless they had made a movement, nothing would have changed. But it's so much bigger. This justice system that we're dealing with is one of the hugest monsters I've ever seen. Without, um, without what they did in the Black Lives Matter movement, without going over the top, if you would, we wouldn't have the exposure of what's taking place every day in the justice system. They have the power and they have the authority to do whatever they want to do to us whenever they feel like it. And we have no clue. I had done nothing wrong and yet they were able to take my daughter from me. I had no visitation. She was not even allowed to text me. She was not allowed to speak to me. I had one counselor with my oldest daughter that I was assigned to. They removed her from my case. And she told me directly, I've never seen what they're doing behind your back. She said, you've got to get this case removed from this region. She said, Samantha, all I did was state facts and I cannot help it if it was negative against him. They removed her and said that she had become biased to me. They made me start all over with another counselor for my youngest. I walked into this counseling's office, counselor's office, and I said, I need to know if this was a conflict of interest. This is who my ex-husband is. The secretary broke a HIPAA, a HIPAA law and said, oh, he sees the owner here on Saturdays. I think she lost her job over it, but I know that God probably blessed her. I took that report, gave it to the judge, had other counselors report saying this is a conflict of interest. The judge came back and said, I'm over, I'm overriding it and demanding you to go to that counseling's office. So he's seeing the owner and his new wife's best friend is the owner's daughter and is also a counselor there. So they had access to all records. They had access to everything. But my youngest was threatening to commit suicide. So I started flying in to go to that counselor that I chose in that office. And she ended up being such a breath of fresh air. She pushed us to our limits. When she pushed me to my limits, I cried. I found out that when she pushed him to his, he cussed everybody out in the office. She said, I now see what I'm dealing with, but we have to cross every T and dot every I. So we went through everything. My daughter is begging to come back with me. Mind you, the law states that at the age of 16, she gets to choose who she wants to be with, but they still wouldn't give me time with her. I um, keep going to counseling. That's the only time I can see my daughter. Mind you, the first meeting that I had with that counselor, he showed up in uniform in his cop car to intimidate me. All he got was a slap on the wrist. I, there's so much more I could tell you that I've gone through in the last seven years with the justice system. So we go to the counseling. Everything's going great. The counselor is appalled that there's no contact. There's, she's like, there's no reason. She's ready to make her report. She says, we've got to be very careful. I don't want to be negative to him so they don't remove me from the case. At this point, my daughter is 17 years old. It's been two years that we've been away from each other. My daughter is telling the counselor, I want, I want to be with my mom. Um, and the counselor suggests joint custody 50-50. She said, because if we went for all custody, it would be harder. She said, I'm not going to degrade him because I'm just going to honor what you guys have done. She said, the judge demanded her to write 
what she needed to say in a sealed on in a letter in a sealed envelope and hand it to him directly and never give it to the attorneys. We go back to court right after he receives the letter. The counselor told me they call me into court and I'm thinking we're going because they're going to give me time with my child. My child leaves with my mother. I get to court and um, she's going with my mom because she wants to see the judge because she wants to tell him the truth. She wrote him a handwritten letter about everything that my ex-husband was doing, who he really was and why she wanted to be with me. She had even put in the letter, if you don't let me go with my mom, I don't know if I'll survive this. A literal cry for help. I show up to the courthouse and the judge calls me up. Miss Levy, where is your daughter? We're about to get you for custodial interference. I want that child back at the police department right now to go with her father. And I don't know why you thought you were brought in here today, but you're now being charged with paying all medical bills that the insurance doesn't cover. <laughs> so I go back to the counselor and she is just dumbfounded. So she goes above the judge's head and sends the letter to me, her recommendation to me and to both attorneys. And I put a demand on the court. I want my child and time with my child. The letter states that there's absolutely no reason for this mother and daughter to not be reunited, to not come together, to not have 50% custody, da, da 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 without supervision. There's absolutely nothing here. They've, they've worked through everything, da 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 I go back into court, Clay, and I'm thinking, here I am on my roller coaster, my emotional roller coaster. I'm like, yes, she's, we can do this. I've already set it up at, at work that I'm going to take two weeks off and work two weeks so that I can get an apartment in the town where she's at so I can get her through high school and at least get to see the last part of her senior year. I go into court. There's absolutely no way that this judge cannot give this to me now. Do you know what they gave me? Two hours in a public restaurant once a week. I have a pretty similar similar situation like that at home with my little sister where she, um, like my parents have permanent legal custody of her, but she's granted like a couple hours a week to see like her biological mom and dad. Um, it's I, I don't, it's not the same because you have a much closer um, bond with your daughter than I would say that they do her. But it's like it's such a weird thing that that's even something that the courts honor because it's like either a I, actually in all circumstances, I don't think it's conducive because either one, the child isn't even close to the parents that are visiting them for a couple hours. So that's not doing anything besides creating a sort of rift in the child's mind about who the like the parents yeah. are right or two the child is already biased in favor of one of the parents to the point where it's pointless for them to go and that this person on um what's the word i'm looking for unfairly has any sort of influence in their life so it isn't like they're present but like every for two hours once a week they can come in there and they can plant their ideas and do their thing and it's like it just doesn't seem healthy it doesn't seem conducive it it's really sad that that's something that the court system allows. So I definitely oh, it was horrible. We're still rebuilding. She turned eighteen in August, and we're rebuilding. As a matter of fact, she made me cheeseburger dinners last night. She just, that's her new thing. She's like, "Mom, I want to cook you dinner." <laughs> okay, maybe I'll drive to town. <laughs> but just the rebuilding of being out of her life for so long for no reason, you know. And everything that they were charging me with, he was doing, but because he was a cop. 
he got away with it because he was a cop. There was my attorney at one point said, Samantha, it doesn't matter what facts I present. When I brought the IRS papers and the um, and the um, papers on my Lexus, like how I got the um, the loan, I remember taking those into the judge. And I said, Your Honor, you called me a liar. And I brought in the paperwork to show you and prove to you I wasn't lying to you because I don't like to be called a liar. And do you know what the judge said? I don't want to see that. I said, of course you don't, because you never had my best interest. You never treated me fair since I stepped foot in your courtroom. And now I'm working with a group of people that is exposing everything that's going on in this podunk Tennessee area. So judges are now being exposed for money laundering. We're working on the one that had me for seven years. I'm finding out that he did civil suits. He didn't even do custody cases. My oldest daughter was telling me one day, she said, mom, I remember when I was with dad and we were in the chambers with the judge and dad and his attorney and she's going off and she's telling me and she said, and and the judge looked at me and said, you don't have anything to worry about your dad's attorney right here. I raised her like my own daughter. She's my daughter's best friend. I've known her since she was a little girl, whatever y'all want, you're going to get. And I'm like, wait a second. You were where she said I was, we were in the chambers with the judge. So not only was that conflict of interest that this man knew this attorney that well, and my daughter said, I'll, I'll say it in court. But I said, who was in there? It was me and dad and his attorney and the judge. I said, where was my representation? Why am I in the middle of a court case, but you get to be in the chambers with your attorney? Why am I being charged and being thrown in jail for talking about the court case to my daughter when you talk about the court case and nothing happens. It has been, it was so devastating. And I have to say, I was so mad at God through it all. I was so mad. Like, I don't understand. Like, where are you? If you're God, why aren't you showing up for me? Like, am I that bad of a person that you're not going to fight for me after everything I've done for you, Lord? Like I was angry at God. And I'll never forget what he said to me. I'm building my case. And now, just now, seven going into eight years, I'm working with the people. We're talking undercover FBI, Secret Service, that are exposing all of the injustice out here. But they told us, like, are you ready to lay your life down? Because people have ended up murdered out here over it. And they called it suicide. I think it's I think it's very brave and honorable that you're going to do that. Um... What did Samantha write in the sand? That... My life is laid down to help others, truly. And I think that that was the epiphany, revelation, whatever you want to call it, that I went when I realized this is a book and a movie. And if this is happening to me, it's happening to others. And this is a book and a movie that I'm going to put out there. And honey, I'm going to be laughing all the way to the bank. (laughs) I'm going to be laughing all the way to the bank. Because everything that you have thrown at me, I'm going to use it to get where I want to go. And if I can empower a hundred people, a thousand people, a million people with that concept, that everything that you have gone through, every ounce of it, figure out, be smart enough, be wise enough to figure out how to use it to not only help others, but to get you to the places that you dream about being. And don't quit. Don't quit. You know, somehow, some way, God has a way of building his case. 
And it might not happen at the time that you want it to happen. And it might not even happen the way you want it to happen. But he's going to make sure it happens. Because all things that we go through work together for our good. All of it. If we learn how to see it correctly. We have to retrain our brain to see that every tragedy, every trauma develops something inside of you, a lesson that needed to be learned, a character trait that you needed to carry as long as you respond to it correctly. Yeah. And now I love my daughter and both of my daughters are gay. And I don't care what church people say because they're my kids. And I understand the father's heart. He loves us unconditionally. In the church world, they call it agape love. And when we start to understand that, we change. That we have maybe not 10 people in our corner, but at all times you've always, you've always got one person in your corner. And he's got your back. And he's never leaving. He's never going to forsake you. He's always there. And he is the giver of peace, the giver of joy. He gives understanding that helps us to overcome everything, every obstacle we've ever endured in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm good. And I feel more pretty than I've ever been. <laughs> Your story has been exceptional. And all of this is coming in a new book. You've kind of dropped hints at it. So the first book I ever wrote was called Samantha's Song. And I haven't published it yet. It is my testimony. And pretty much everything I shared, like I told you guys, yours, this is the first time I've ever opened up this much. Out of 20 plus years being in the public eye, this is the only time that I've ever shared all of the things I went through. And uh, so Samantha's song, hopefully I'll get that done this year. And then that book is going to be called The Lost Voice. And it has to do with injustice in the Justice Department. And uh, what's going on with people that are married to cops, married into the system, all of those things. And um, I'm working with a group of people. At some point, I want it to, to be a documentary where I can share different people's stories. What I envision is having them on little video clips, you know, just giving pieces of their life and what they had to deal with, with injustice and how the justice system of America is failing. The church system, I hate to say this, is failing. And these are the things that my life, I want when that gravestone hits the ground. <laughs> I want that little dash in between those two numbers to speak volumes. I want people to know that I made a difference. That no matter what was thrown at me, I used it to help others to become everything that they were created to be. In closing... What are three books you would recommend Ooh. to the audience? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> of course, the greatest author that ever lived. The and Bible. don't say don't don't say the Bible. Don't say the Bible. <laughs> the Bible. That's that's like my go-to. Um, that was, I, of course, that's like the greatest book to me. I I I now call it the 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 that he's the greatest the greatest author that ever lived. You know, so that's that, so that I can um, get that out there. But um, of course, I think. Uh, I, of course, I have to honor the book that I wrote, it, which is Valleys, Better Than the Mountaintops. You can get it on Amazon. I think we might have listed it last time. But it literally shows you different perspectives of things and seasons that you go through in life 
and the spoils or the rewards or the lessons or the whatever that you're supposed to receive from it. And so when you can start to see that something came out of those times, it changes you on the inside, how you see life, how you view life. And all of a sudden, joy and peace come from it. I don't know another book. I'm not much of a book reader. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I would, of course, say Samantha's song because it shares so much of the things I went through and what happened to get me past it, how I overcame it. Do you have a timeline for um, when I discipline myself to sit down and finish it? <laughs> it's horrible. It's, you know, writing a book is very time consuming. So trying to work and trying to do life and also write your book, I'm probably going to have to set time aside and just get it done. But I'm going to say, let's get it done in 2023. Hopefully we'll get it done maybe by the middle of this year. And where can our listeners find you online to pressure you into releasing <laughs> your book? Yeah, how can we peer pressure you into doing this? Yeah, we can send as many people as we it. can find to peer pressure um, you, but my, where can we my, find you? Of course, my my go-to is Facebook. And so you can get me at Samantha Levy, L-E-V-Y. And then in parentheses, what sets me apart is my maiden last name, Bailey-Davis. So it's Samantha Levy, Bailey-Davis. Easiest way to find it is go to Samantha Levy Ministries. And when you find that, it's usually one of the top. And then you can turn on that, and it'll also bring you to Samantha Levy Bailey Davis. But I do most of my stuff on my main page. Um, Instagram, samantha.levy.96. My website is under construction because I feel like the phoenix who was, you know, and I feel like beauty is coming out of the ashes. And we are, we're, we're rising again. And I'm, I'm recreating who I am, what I want to be seen as what I want to deliver. I won't, I won't fit in the boxes. I, I, I've always been a little bit of a rebel. I guess you can tell. Um, Clay, we also have, I do destination retreats, uh, which is I'm setting up safe places for women to come. Uh, and what I mean by that is a place where you can take the mask off, where you learn to be yourself, where we teach you how to love you through the power of words and encouragement and um, just especially for women, I will be doing marriage retreats in the future. I will do business networking retreats in the future. Um, but right now I'm focused mostly on women, women that have been through the battles with the scars and learning how to change their mindsets just through encouragement, through love, unconditional and building relationships that will last a lifetime. So we do them in Destin. I might do one in Nashville pretty soon. Lake Tahoe is coming this year. So uh, and we just have fun. We just have fun. It has been so great to have you on. Your story is incredible. I can't wait for your book to come out. I know I will probably read yeah, it. You know my mom it. will read it. For our listeners, I my mom her. is crazy She needs lady to come to one of the retreats. You need to send her to one of likes. the retreats. <laughs> yeah. I'll she tell would her. love it. She'll hear my, this. You're going so. to camp. Shout out, mom. Pack you're going bags. to summer camp. <laughs> it's time to enjoy life. <laughs> We're living our best life. <laughs> To our listeners, thank you for joining us. We appreciate having you. If you are a first-time listener, check out our other stuff. Leave a review. Reviews help us grow. And don't forget our, about our Patreon. No, I just appreciate you guys. We, we really <laughs> we wouldn't do this without you guys. We couldn't do this without you guys. So thanks for showing your love and support. I think recently we just, what, like 750 downloads? We got to? Yeah. Oh, we just we just hit a, we just hit a milestone. A 750 total downloads. Um and that, so that's huge. incredible. Yeah, that's, that's massive. So thank you guys so much for your support. Love it. Let's hit a thousand. 
Let's hit ten thousand. <laughs> that's yeah, my yeah. that's my goal. My goal. Like Jake was well, Jake was so excited for seven hundred, and I was like, "All right, let's do it." I was like, "Clay, there's no way we got seven hundred, bro." <laughs> no, we're gonna hit it for ten thousand. How about that? <laughs> Samantha, we gotta ask: um, waffles or pancakes? Ooh, wow! It depends. If a chicken is included, it's waffles. But any other time, it's pancakes. But maybe some blueberries and some whipped cream. <laughs> Gosh, you're a character. On team, on team pancake. <laughs> I'm, all the way. I'm team pancake all the way. I don't like I'm just a food. waffles. You know what I? I've actually cut my mouth on waffles. Like the sharp. Yeah, they're sharp. Waffles. They're sharp. That's because you didn't. You it's didn't like drown eating, it with um, syrup. <laughs> you ever? You ever eat sour skittles for too long and like the top of your the roof oh, of your mouth yeah, goes yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. raw? That's like what eating a waffle feels <laughs> like. I don't like sour stuff. I have to keep eating sugar because it keeps me sweet. That's my justification. <laughs> Let me ask you, Samantha, do you think the waffle will be sharp enough for me to chop off Jake's mustache? Um, it's it depends on who cooked it. Oh, I'm going to burn it. <laughs> it's going to be burnt. It's going to be crispy. Jake, one eye open, my friend. I'm coming for you. You might have just created a new weapon, sir. The mustache is fake, dude. It comes oh, off. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I knew it. I actually I knew keep that. It, I keep it in a, in yeah, a jar. Yeah, you keep it in a little hide. jar, right? I love it. Yeah. It's like you're, such a, you're an imposter. Hey, watch it. Watch it. Us women, we like our nails, our lashes, our hair did. <laughs> See, Samantha's coming for you, too. <laughs> Dude, I'll say a chance at this point. Samantha, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Listeners, guys. I can't wait to bring you to Check Nashville. us out next week. Let's do, a, let's do a podcast from Nashville. Go downtown. Live in-person podcast with Samantha. It'll be on the Patreon. Check it out.